Often right before the beginning of the public reading of Scripture and the preaching of the Word, children are dismissed from the worship service. Our Reformation forefathers and their successors and the Puritans would recoil in horror at the sight. Welcome to the Protestant Witness. This is Pastor Patrick Hines here at Gridwell Heights Presbyterian Church in Kingsport, Tennessee. And today I'd like to post the uh, final uh, message that I preached on the issue of the regulative principle. In this particular sermon, what I emphasized is that in the Word of God, all the way through from the beginning to the end, when it comes to the gathered people of God for worship, the assumption is that everybody, including the children, are to be there in worship. And so in this particular message, I try to emphasize the importance of that and also the consequences of not having the family together for worship services in Christ's church. So without any more um, preface, I hope that you'll take the time to listen to this. I know this is a huge problem um, in churches today. The way that age segregation and youth ministry are done today has been to the detriment of our children and future generations, and we're losing generation after generation of people uh, to the world, um, I think in part because they've never really been part of the local church. We've pushed them off to the side and uh, have not even included them in the in the worship service and have gotten them used to having peer-oriented groups that are supposed to do things that they like instead of making sure that the older segments of congregations have regular contact with the younger so that they can rub off some wisdom and godliness upon them. So without any more introduction, I hope you find this to be edifying. Let's pray together, please. Father, thank you for giving us the words of eternal life, for speaking to us. Help us remember what our Lord taught us. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And these words indeed have proceeded from your mouth. And when we read your word, what we are reading are the very words of God. And what scripture says is what God has said. It's what you have said. Help us remember why we are here. We are here to meet with the triune God and fellowship with one another, to glorify your name together. You are the audience of all that we do here. And it is for your sake, it is to please you that we do everything we do. May our minds and hearts be engaged in the acts of worship in listening to what your word says, receiving its truths with faith and love, laying them up in our hearts and practicing them in our lives. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We have two scripture readings this morning. 1 Peter 2. Verses 1 and 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 is the first one, and the second one is back in the book of Exodus, and we'll go there after we read the first one. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. This is God's word. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies... Long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And then our second scripture reading is Exodus 12, 26 and 27. Exodus chapter 12, verses 26 and 27. 
Exodus 12, verses 26 and 27. Exodus 12, verses 26 and 27. This is God's word. And when your children say to you, What does this right mean to you? You shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. May God bless the reading of his infallible word. The last two Sunday mornings we've looked in some detail at the biblical truth that God's service of worship from his redeemed people is to be regulated by scripture alone regarding the elements of the service of worship. God delights in and commands from us prayer and the reading of scripture, sound preaching, hearing the word of God with faith, the singing of psalms, the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ, those are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God, along with religious oaths and vows, solemn fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions, our confession says. Now folks, those are the non-negotiables. And we talked about those the last two Sundays. Those are what we have to do for our gathering on Sunday to be called a Christian gathering of worship. Those are non-negotiables. A gathering of Christian people on the Lord's Day Sabbath where the Bible is not opened or read or heard, that would not be a proper worship service. A gathering of Christian people on a Lord's Day Sabbath where no prayer was offered would not be a proper worship service because one of the essential elements would be missing from it. We are not to add to Scripture nor subtract from Scripture regarding how God desires his people to worship him on the Sabbath day when they gather for that sacred task. I hope that that has been made very clear from Scripture the last two Sundays. Now, the circumstances of worship, as opposed to the elements, the circumstances of worship, whether we have a building, a a pulpit, a pew, whether we wear suits, use a sound system, have certain instruments, etc., that is to be ordered not necessarily by Scripture alone, but by the light of nature and Christian prudence, which are always to be governed by the general rules of the Word. So those are the basic principles that the Scriptures give us on what we're supposed to do as Christians in the church on the Lord's Day. Now, I've given you a two-point outline. This is our final message on the regulative principle. And the two-point outline there is in your bulletin. The first point is active engagement in worship. Active engagement in worship. Now that we've seen what God requires and what he forbids in worship, what is our role as worshipers? The sad tragedy and indeed a great evil in our time is that so many professing Christians today go to church to be entertained rather than to express their love for Jesus Christ by singing the hymns, listening carefully to the reading and preaching of the word and making the pastoral prayers their own. Always remember that great biblical truth. God is the audience of worship. I hope that for the rest of your life, kids, young people, For the rest of your life, when you go to any church anywhere, that you'll be thinking that. Who's the audience of this? Who's the audience of this? 
Who is watching this? Who is this for? It is for God. God is the audience of worship. We don't go to worship to be entertained passively. We do not go to take in a performance or a show or a stand-up comedy act. We go to engage actively in something very sacred. We go to engage in something active. And here's the most important point that I want you to see from the Word of God today. Worship is something that you do. Worship is something you engage in. Worship does not happen to you. Worship doesn't happen to you. It's something that you do. And the second point in the outline, and worship is something that we do as families. Worship is something that we engage in. It doesn't happen to us. We do it. We are active participants in it. And it's something that we do as families. We are participants in sacred tasks and divine duties when we gather as the people of God. One of the most encouraging things that anyone has ever said to me after a sermon was, I feel tired after listening to you. That's good. I'm trying to wear you out. That's someone who engaged worship. That's a good thing. Worship is not passive. It's, it's active. We engage with God. We engage in listening. We engage in prayer. And for so many people in our culture today, they go to church thinking, well, I, I shouldn't have to discipline my wandering mind. I, I shouldn't have to discipline myself at all. What you do should be like a rock concert, and it should keep us, it should keep our attention, and you should be entertaining us, and you should be funny and witty and everything else. But we are here to engage in prayer, to engage in a disciplined thing, something that God has called us to. These are duties, divine and important tasks. We engage in rejoicing. We engage sometimes in mourning over our own sin. But either way, our whole person is engaged in sacred tasks when we come into the service of worship on the Lord's Day Sabbath in church. Our emotions are involved. We can feel the crushing burden of conviction of sin. Sometimes we feel joy unspeakable and full of glory that our heavenly resting place of blessedness and peace awaits us. The unfulfillable longing to at last be with the Lord in heaven, that consumes our whole being. The terrible sadness and heartache over our lost loved ones, we feel that in service too. The incredible humbling that the grace of God brings to us. That Jesus would die to make wretches like us his treasured possession. Is an amazing emotional thing. Worship ought to tire us out a little bit. But what a joy it is to be worn out for the right reason, isn't it? To be worn out from loving the Lord Jesus who bled and died to set us free. And to give us all things. And to call us away from idolatry. Away from a life of Sabbath breaking, to be part of his church, it's a great thing to love him by giving him back a sacrifice of praise, by engaging with him in worship. What could be more humbling than acknowledging that all we have is Christ. It is his cross alone that brings us full pardon of sin. It is his perfect and pristine righteousness alone that clothes our sinful nakedness and justifies us before his terrible tribunal. It is God's loving and altogether astounding and gracious verdict that we are now adopted into his family once and for all eternity. And that that sacred bond and blood-bought adoption covers us and cannot in any way ever be taken away or broken by anything. The world can have its fame, its fading glory, its fickle praises, the passing pleasures of sin, 
But Lord Jesus, give us a greater heart to know you. A stronger hatred of our remaining indwelling sin. A burden for the lost. A hunger for the word of God. And a love for our precious brothers and sisters in our local church. To whom we are all joined together in the family of God. Yes, indeed, for the redeemed child of God, worship is draining. And it should wear us out. God deserves a zealous and a hearty sacrifice of praise from his blood-bought children. Now look at the passage if you want to turn back to 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2. Very key, critical, important things revealed by God in this precious two verses. 1 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, in our church... Of late, the, the image of longing for milk like a newborn baby has special poignancy for a number of folks here and will shortly for others. The expression used in verse 1, though, is a very vivid phrase newborn babies, RT Genata Brefe. Newborn babies. This is not talking about toddlers, this is talking about babies that are just a few days old. Okay, this is the, the tiniest of newborns that are being spoken of here. And that term, long for, that's used here, or desire, it refers to the deepest of longings that a human being can have. These are the deepest longings that are possible for image bearers of God. That same word for longing, where it says desire, like a newborn baby, the pure milk of the word, that very same term is used in 2 Corinthians 5 for the longing that the Christian has to be in heaven. To be with Jesus at last. Yes, indeed, our longing for the word of God will be on that level. And the exhortation here in in 1 Peter 2 is forceful regarding how we are to long for the word of God. You hear what it says in the opening verse there? To do that well, what do you need to do first? Put aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Folks, don't come to church with a heart full of hatred towards a bunch of other people in your life. It's a very interesting way that that's prefaced. Long for the pure milk of the word, how? Come to church first and put away all your negative feelings about other human beings. Lay aside all malice, all envy of others, all of that. Lay it aside. Don't come to church with a heart full of hate, lies, hypocrisy, envy, and slander towards other people. Lay aside those things. Be like a newborn baby. Those newborn babies, when their stomachs begin to cramp and to hurt them for lack of milk, they devote the entirety of their being to making that known. It's really a sad thing to see how upset they get. It it really is. And yet the scriptures themselves are commanding us to be like that with regard to the word of God. Like that newborn baby who shrieks, who shrieks and cries out, and kicks its little legs and arms and wants the answer to the stomach cramps right now. Let us remember someone else who was hungry once. In the face of brutal temptation and hunger pains, piercing his holy stomach, which ached for food. In the face of the devil himself saying, if you really are what your father just said at your baptism, the son of God, then command these stones to become bread and satiate that hunger. Remember what Jesus said back to him? He said it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If only for a day, perhaps, our souls would feel the piercing hunger 
that they have for the word of God in the same way that physical hunger pierces us. There would never be a day that our Bibles sat unopened in our homes. There would not be those occasions in which we make the conscious choices to compromise with sin. Well, folks, in the last two Sundays, we've criticized the show business entertainment shallow drivel that is done in so much of evangelical Christianity and America today, which, which really has become a, a competitive marketplace with all of its glitz and nonsense. But I, I want to ask all of us what it is that we long for when we hear the alarm clock on Sunday mornings. When you got to walk around your house and you keep looking at the clock, make sure you're going to get here on time. You clean yourself up. If you have children, you get them cleaned up, dressed, diapered. When you make sure that you leave with enough time to get here, what is it that you long for? What's in your heart and mind? In the previous two sermons, we've emphasized that worship is for the triune God. And indeed, it is. We are here not to be entertained or amused, but to meet with love, adore, worship, and glorify the creator of all that you see in this whole world. All that you see in the clear night sky. With this majestic wonders and the heavenly hosts, we are to worship the creator of all of that. That's why we're here. But we need to ask another question about why we're here. Don't you long to hear a word from God? I remember listening to R.C. Sproul, one of, the, one of the early tape series that tells you how old I am. One of the early tape series I got, those little audio cassettes for the younger generation. I used to listen to R.C. Sproul. I remember him saying when, before he was a pastor, when he used to just go to church, He longed, he said, I longed to hear a word from God. I wanted him to speak directly to me. I wanted someone to open the word of God and teach me what it said. Doesn't that burn in your heart too? I want to hear what my heavenly father has to say to me, his son or his daughter. What needs to be corrected and changed? What do I need to be rebuked for? What words of encouragement do I need? How do I need to understand the way the world works better from your word? Now notice verse 2 again of 1 Peter Two, why are we commanded to long for the pure milk of the word like newborn babies? So that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now this obviously does not mean that salvation is a process that we grow and get more and more saved or anything like that. This is the broader usage of the term salvation. This is the broader that includes our sanctification, our growth and holiness in our Christian lives. Just to emphasize to you again to make sure there's no confusion here. We are saved and justified before God legally at the exact moment when God grants repentance unto life and faith in Christ. Justification is a forensic legal declaration made by God as judge once for all eternity. Our final verdict before God on the day of judgment is forever changed from condemned by the law to justified before God's law. The moment we believe. Jesus' cross work is accepted in our behalf as the full payment of all of our sins and his life of obedience is put into our legal account. And there cannot ever be, there cannot ever be any legal condemnation to those who truly know Christ as Savior. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You see why the idea of a final salvation by works is not possible? Once a person is justified, no charge can be brought against them. There is, no, there is no evaluation of works to get you into heaven. It can't happen. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. Furthermore, it's also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul said that 
in 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all. Here, listen to this part. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. The redeemed children of God are to long for the pure milk of the word because that's true of us. We want to live the rest of the time that we have, the short bit of time that we've been given. We want to live that for him, for the one who died for us and rose again. Not for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. And so the pure milk of the word is what strengthens us and causes us to grow in grace and in holiness and overcoming sin. We want to shine his light more and more. We want to grow. That's what we're here for. To worship him and to grow in our walk with Christ. We want to shine his light. We want our spouses, if we're married, to be loved as no spouse has ever been loved by their husband or wife. We want our children to know that their father and mother loved them. And we wanted them to go to heaven. We want our employers to know that Christ is alive. We can see that. We want our employers to see it in us, in our diligence, our dedication, our integrity, and in the love that permeates the way we work. Paul goes on, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We desire the pure milk of the word because we want to be more and more and more of that new creation. And we want the old man, the old woman, to die more and more and to go away more and more. We want to grow thereby by the word, that that soul-nourishing milk of the word of God. We're new creations. Our pasts are dead and buried with Christ. We are dead and buried with Christ. There is a new principle of self-giving love, just like God has loved us in our hearts. And if we would not stagnate in our knowledge of God, and if we would go on to maturity and godliness, we must discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And that means we go to church. You know, in my generation, there was a there was a real disparaging of, you're not a Christian just because you go to church. And eventually, we had to learn to say, yes, but there's no such thing as a Christian that doesn't go to church. There's no such thing as a Christian that doesn't go to church. The church is the context for Christian growth and discipleship. We hold fast to the words of Scripture and to the great teachings and doctrines which are our life. No matter how we feel, no matter what the result, no matter what happens, our duty is obedience to God. How we feel and the results are God's department. Our duty is simply faithfulness. You may come to church and leave still feeling down and depressed. You may come to church and still feel anxious, still be worried about various things. But Paul said it so well. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. God is the one who makes his word to come alive. God will grow you as he sees fit. He may take you through a period of real trial. That's not an excuse to stop coming to church. It's not an excuse to think it's just not working anymore. Our duty is obedience, faithfulness. No power on earth, no power on earth can make you grow as a Christian. No power in this world. Growth as a Christian does not grow in nature's garden. It's something that God gives through his word, through that milk of the word that can nourish your souls and make you better and make you grow. We are saved by grace, kept by grace. We grow by grace. But we must go with the newborn baby's longing to the fountainhead of life. And you know what? It's okay to pray. It's okay to pray, Lord, I don't have that longing for the word that this passage speaks of. Would you create it in me? 
That word of the living God make me long for it like a newborn baby longs for milk. That pure milk is how the stubborn strongholds of sin are at last broken and Jesus Christ in us emerges more and more. I want to ask you a question and myself a question. Do the demons of your past rear their heads from time to time? Do the sins you once walked in and wore as a red hot iron yoke around your neck Do they often stick in your mind like Satan's darts to remind you what you once were? Remember, dear Christians, the ruined conscience that you once had in those sins. Remember the shame and the regret that you once lived with every day. Remember the sickness your soul felt like when you ate too much dessert so that the thought of another bite of it made you nauseous. Just remember what Peter wrote. Peter Peter was such an interesting person, interesting case study. Later on in the same letter, look at what he wrote in 1 Peter 4.1. He said, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Verse 2. That he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. As you grow in your Christian life through the nourishment of the milk of the word of God into a strong and vibrant, godly and upright child of God who has a strong faith, a strong constitution, who isn't broken by every little thing that happens in your life and brought into the pit of despair. You get stronger and stronger and are able to withstand life's challenges. Perhaps your former friends will begin to think you're really weird. And you know what? That's okay. Let them think that about you. They'll think it's strange. She doesn't want to run with us in the same flood of dissipation. He doesn't talk like us anymore. He doesn't think it's funny when we joke the way we do anymore. He won't run in the same flood of dissipation. And so they'll begin to speak evil of you. That word that's translated dissipation means reckless, abandoned, debauchery, profligacy. What happened to your reckless abandon with your soul, man? Why aren't you cool anymore? Why aren't you debauched with us anymore? Why don't you do the things you once did anymore? Because I don't want to do those things anymore. I have grown past being a fool. I am now growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ through the milk of the word of God. It is nourishing my soul. I have cried out for it. I have confessed my lack of love for it. God is changing me. He's making me better. People who notice that you're no longer one of them as you grow in Christ will begin to speak evil of you. It's promised here. They'll think it's strange. You don't run in the same flood of dissipation and they'll speak evil of you. Yes, your righteousness will be identified as evil by the world of unbelief. Peter himself had a pretty rough background. Remember him? He was a foul-mouthed Galilean fisherman. One of the most unlikely candidates ever to be an apostle of Christ and an author of scripture. And yet we're sitting here reading a letter that he wrote. Many Christian people can identify with Peter, can't we? Because the poor guy blew it so regularly and so profoundly. I love the guy. He was constantly putting his foot in his mouth and messing up. And yet look at what God was able to do with this man who had feet of clay, but a regenerate heart of gold. Even as a Christian, the guy messed up constantly. But the foul-mouthed fisherman became an apostle of Christ, and he wrote two letters, which were God-breathed, which we are now studying. He knew what he was talking about. 
Long for the word of God like a newborn baby. And this is a man who was a newborn baby as a full-grown adult man. And he could see how much he needed the word of God, the teachings of Christ, and the teachings that they were given about the gospel and the grace of God. He's an extraordinary person, an ordinary man who became quite extraordinary. I remember reading in Eusebius's Ecclesiastical History of the Church and Fox's Book of Martyrs how tradition tells us Peter was killed. He was crucified upside down because he didn't think that he was worthy to die in the same posture that Jesus was. And so this ordinary and very sinful man is speaking from his own experience when he says, and you can almost feel it in his heavy heart, he says, we've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, that's the life from which we've been delivered to be brought in here, to be brought among the people of God, having been subdued by our king. Our, our rebel hearts have been subdued by him, brought in here, and he's saying, now long for what I have to give you like a newborn baby longs for milk. Long for it that you may grow thereby. And Peter is the one saying that to us. Wherever you are in your walk with Jesus today, if you're a Christian, the pure milk of the word of God calls out to you to long for it so that you will grow. And maybe it's time. Maybe it's time today to reprioritize your life and to get on your knees before that word. And say, Lord, the longing is not there the way that it should be. And I want it to be. Or maybe it used to be when you first came to Christ and it's, it's fizzled and waned as, as life has happened and trauma has happened and I've been through this experience and that experience and I've got these scars I'm dealing with now. Maybe it's time today to pray to God for his forgiveness and to confess the stone-cold hardness of heart that has taken us away from what is true and good and beautiful and enamored us by the lies and the foolishness of worldliness and the passing pleasures of sin. If the newborn infant child doesn't get that milk, it will get sick and die. And God has given us all that we need for life and godliness and satisfaction in his word. So when you come in here, long for the word of God. Long to listen to his word. Worship is not something that happens to us. Worship is what we engage in when we gather here to meet with the triune God. We engage God by praying. We listen to him in his word. We engage him by singing to him and worshiping him in song. Pray for yourself. And if you have a family, pray for and with your family. That when you're all in the car before you get here, that God will stir your hearts and make it hungry. Make it long for the pure milk of the word. Pray that God will make your hearts and minds receptive to his word. And pray that God will stir all of you to give him a sacrifice of actively engaged praise and worship of which he is worthy. It's heartbreaking to remember my life before I was 18. And how many Sabbath days were wasted on this fool who never went to bed on time. Who was here tired every Sunday. My mother would see me falling asleep on my hand and would push my hand out from under my chin. Wake up. What a fool. How many Sundays were wasted where a man labored over the word of God to bring me something that could have helped me? Shame on us. We don't get adequate sweet, adequate sweet sleep, if I can speak correctly. Nodding off, bleary-eyed, 
Exhausted. Shame on us. Read the last four chapters that God gave to the people of Israel before the intertestamental period started through Malachi. What did Malachi say? What did Malachi say to the church back then? Stop bringing me the sick and the blind and the crippled and the blemished. Stop. God is not pleased with that. What does the Old Testament say? You bring me a blemish-free animal. Is there a parallel to that today? Absolutely. Are we ready to hear from him? Do we long like babies for the milk of the word? God thunders against the cheap sacrifices of praise and says, try it on your governor. Try it on your employer. Will he be pleased with you? The fact is he deserves our very best. Jesus rose from the grave and half the time we can't even get up. May we endeavor to be prayed up and read and and read, read up in God's word every Sunday, every Sunday evening, to worship God, who has given us eternal life at the expense of the agonized groans of his perfect son. And remember, when you come here, aren't you thankful that Jesus died for our Sabbath breaking? Aren't you glad that Jesus died for our lack of hunger for his word? I am. So worship is something that we engage. It's something that we do. We are actively engaged in it. Secondly, this morning, and worship is done as families, Exodus 12, 26, and 27. If you want to turn back there, I'll be reading that for you again. There has been a phenomenon that has happened in recent decades in American churches that is unprecedented in church history. It is the phenomenon of children's church. Often right before the beginning of the public reading of scripture and the preaching of the word, children are dismissed from the worship service. Our Reformation forefathers and their successors and the Puritans would recoil in horror at the sight. The assumption all the way through the church of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament is always that everybody is present for all worship gatherings. And there is a disturbing trend in our culture to separate children from their parents, and that trend seems to permeate nearly every activity and every age level. Almost everything families do, they do separately. Can you think of any activities which encourage every member of a family to be in the same place for an extended period of time? Anything our culture does, anything at all. Sports? No. School? No. Music? No. Swim lessons? No. And sadly, nearly everything done in churches. It doesn't promote families being together either. Rarely do church activities involve all members of all ages being together. And yet, what is the biblical model for the faith going from generation to generation? The biblical model for the fulfilling of the Great Commission. Please hear me. It's not just foreign and home missions. There is a massive, huge, and incredibly neglected component of the Great Commission that has been nearly forgotten to the terrible detriment of generations of Christians in this country. Exodus 12, 26. You see it? And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say... It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Later on in Exodus 13, 14. So it shall be when your sons ask you in time to come, saying, What is this that you shall say to him? By strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. 
Later on in the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 4.9, Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and grandchildren. When Mary sings her Magnificat, after she finds out the Messiah is coming through my womb, she says, And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Not on this generation, and then they lose it all together, and the next six generations worship Baal, and then another generation later. It's from generation to generation, if that generation's faithful. Ephesians 6, 4, And you fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now folks, we could spend the next eight Sundays just looking at such exhortations from Scripture. But what's the point? Children are a vital part of the worship of God's people. We want to promote the older generations loving and knowing the younger generations. Why? In case you haven't noticed this, no one is born wise. Have you noticed that? No one's born wise. The scripture gives us the universal axiom. What's in the heart of a child? Foolishness. You will never meet a child where wisdom was bound up in their heart. Never met, never met one where wisdom is bound up in their heart from birth. So what do you get if you separate wiser, older people from younger people and put younger people together with minimal, wiser, older supervision? Lots and lots and lots of foolishness. And the staggering truth is that the majority of ideas about ministry that exist in evangelical churches today seem to be determined to make sure. To make sure that the older and wiser and godliest segments of society and of our churches never have any contact with or influence upon younger generations. It's almost literally like people sat down. How can we make sure that we don't do what God says? Let's make sure that children have no contact with the older segments of the church. That'll do it, yeah. That'll make sure that generation after generation after generation loses the faith and goes to hell. Great idea. Titus 2 gives us the older, younger model for ministry. And believe me, you don't want your children to be discipled by their peers. The whole congregation needs to try as much as possible, do things together so that everyone can get to know everyone else. There were a handful of older folks in the church I grew up in who took an interest in me. I cannot tell you how important that was to me. Who would pull me aside. What have you been doing lately? Patrick, what have you been doing lately, ma'am? You don't want to know. Well, I've been praying for you. Your father asked me to pray for you. I pray for you all the time. I'm going to be asking you once in a while, how's it going? People write me little letters and things like that. Little tiny things like that. They were like silver bullets to my heart. So much of that kept me from being more foolish than I probably would have been. The children must be here for worship, folks. They can't be dismissed from the service before we open the word of God. When my precious Lily was about three years old, she would often sit with someone other than Amy during the church. You know, that's my, my kids throughout the time, because I've been up in front and been an elder and a pastor, they've been scattered throughout the church quite a bit. And one communion Sunday, I remember serving communion, distributing the elements, and I saw Lily at age three sitting on a, a woman's lap. And she asked her the question in her three-year-old voice, why are we doing this? And that godly woman said to remember that Jesus died for our sins and the bread is the sign of his body. And I could hear that being said as I was walking away going, what would she have heard if she was in children's church? She needed to be there for that. That's the church being the church. That's the older witnessing to the younger. The older explaining it to the younger. The children must be there for worship. 
My heart was warmed by hearing that. That's the church being the church to the rising generation. Like Mary said, from generation to generation. From generation to generation. With the church I came from, I was an elder and a pastor there for a total of 10 years. And that model of ministry that was adopted there was the tradition of what has become, it's actually unprecedented in the history of the church, but it's become the traditional age-segregated, full-tilt, staffed youth ministry model. And I watched class after class after class of 18-year-olds walk away from the church and never come back. The few that stayed constantly complained of the elders, myself included, using the following expression. I heard this from more people than I could count. Quote, there's nothing for us here anymore, end quote. That always struck me as odd, given that the membership role of that church was around 340. And as I reflected more and more, what, what do they mean by that? There's nothing here for me anymore. I finally understood what they were saying. What they were really saying was this. There's not a peer-oriented group for me here anymore. And they would constantly say, we just don't feel like we're part of the church anymore. And it finally hit me. They don't feel like they're part of the church because they've never been part of it. They've never been part of it. They're always pushed aside. We come here as parents, as adults. We want a quiet worship experience. Get these kids out of our hair. And folks, the transition from being in high school to being part of the church, it ought to be transparent and seamless because our children need to feel like they've always been part of the church. They've always been actively engaged in the worship of God in this place. But just think with me about worship and the general activities of the church. We ought to do things together. We, we ought to try to do as much as we can together. Especially the solemn act of worship. This is why we don't do children's church. We have a nursery that goes to the age of two. But the day the kids turn three, they need to be here in the service with their parents. And they need to be taught that they are not just observers of what's going on here. They are participants. They are to sing the hymns. Turn to him so-and-so, and let's stand together as we sing. The children need to know. From the time they can understand the English language, that is their cue. Get a hymnal, turn to that hymn, and try to sing along. As soon as they can read, they need to be given a Bible, and they need to turn to the passages and follow along. They need to be taught how to take their place as a worshiper of God as soon as they are able and have the capacity to do so. And we, primarily their parents, are to be evangelizing them along the way. And having them in worship from the earliest age possible, believe me, will provide you with plenty of opportunities to evangelize them. How do you think Paul would have reacted if he had been told, hey, Paul, that church you planted in Corinth, yeah, they had this great idea of removing the kids between the ages of 3 and 16 and what they're calling children's church when the sermons are preached. What do you think Paul would have written them about that? It would have been Galatian-esque, I am sure. Children are not to be set aside while the adults can go about the business of worshiping God. And folks, this just has to be said. It's an illustration of sinful selfishness. I don't want to be bothered with all my kids. They get on my nerves. They drive me crazy all week long. I want some me time with me and God. Folks, we seriously need to grow up from that. That's nonsense. Our children need to be here with us. And it doesn't matter if they fuss. We have a crying room for that. Also, if kids are disobedient, their parents need to take them to the crying room and in a loving, caring, self-controlled way, Spank them, pray with them, and then bring them back in here. And that may happen over and over again. 
Now, I spent my younger years as a father with kids up to my eyeballs and kids going in and out of service constantly with them. It's a process they have to learn and be taught by patient, loving parents who are more concerned that their children know Christ than they are with their own comfort and convenience. And I want to say something to all of you, as I know this church has a ton of children, whether they're your children or not, and whether you have children or not, or are married or not, I hope you pray every day for all these little ones. We are approaching 50 covenant children. 50. Think of the potential that's there for good and evil. Mom and dad, I want to tell you something. Don't ever be put out that one of your children is fussing while I'm preaching. Don't ever let it bother you. It doesn't bother me in the least. It's just like being at home. (laughs) And when you patiently take them out in the lobby or the crying room to settle them down, to discipline them if needed, and to pray with them and for them, you are every bit as worshiping God as anyone else in this room is. You're not distracting me. You're not distracting anybody. You're doing what God's asked you to do. It is one of the most encouraging things I see from where I stand behind this pulpit. One of the most encouraging things I ever see is the patient, loving parent who has a heart for their children and wants to help them come to know Christ and wants them to learn how to be still and listen and how to trust and know Christ as their Lord and Savior. You may miss some things that are being said or done in the service, but the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is smiling upon you as you obey his command to teach them diligently to keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, and to be reconciled to God that they might one day profess their own faith in Christ and our blessed Jesus and be a communicant member of this congregation. So together, dear congregation, we are the family of God together. We worship God together. And we aren't the fullness of that family if we separate the future of the church from us. We can't do that in our corporate worship. Worship is what we do. It's what we engage in, and we do it as families. We do it as one whole family together for the glory of our Lord and Savior and Redeemer. And if we would be a biblical church regulated by God's holy word, we must always bear those things in our minds. The proper way of worship is instituted by God's word alone, to which nothing at any time is ever to be added or subtracted. God is the audience, and God calls his visible church to worship him as the whole visible church, which from the days of Adam until right here, right now, has been those who know and profess faith in the one true God together with their children. Our ecclesiology, our understanding of the church, precludes us from children's church. And let us obey God in that regard. And let us pray that as long as there is a gospel witness in this place, that the Christian people who gather here to worship and adore God will do so with everyone in the family every Lord's Day. To worship him as he instructs us to in his word until our Lord at last returns. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for instructing us on what to do in church. We pray that we would be here every Sunday morning with that newborn baby longing for the pure milk of the word, that we would grow thereby. We who truly know Christ, we're thankful that we don't live in the flood of dissipation and debauchery that we once walked in. We're thankful that you've delivered us from it. And we pray that we would worship as families together as much as possible, as much as possible, and that our young people would learn to take their part as 
worshipers in the congregation, that they would know the older generations, that they would see them in their devoutness and learn from their godliness. And we pray that you would help us to be faithful in the discharge of those blessed and sacred duties to be your worshipers and to instruct generation to generation how to be worshipers of the living God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This is Pastor Patrick Hines of Bridwell Heights Presbyterian Church, located at 108 Bridwell Heights Road in Kingsport, Tennessee, and you've been listening to the Protestant Witness Podcast. Please feel free to join us for worship any Sunday morning at 11 a.m. sharp, where we open the Word of God together, sing His praises, and rejoice in the gospel of our risen Lord. You can find us on the web at www.bridwellheightspca.org. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Jesus.